uh, that his teaching would contradict God's promise to the Jews. We'll look at that more after we come back from the break, but I want to start with these first five verses. So Romans 9, somebody read 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and a seeking anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them would belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul starts this section by clarifying his attitude toward the Jews. Now, clearly, there is some Jew-Gentile issues in the background of Rome. We see that a lot, we see it more. And so I don't understand exactly what's going on with that, but I do know that's an issue for sure by everything that he's showing here, by everything he said. So Paul wants to make a strong affirmation of his love for the Jews, his own race, his own people. He starts by affirming strongly, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. If he tells the truth in Christ, he is saying that Christ bears me with us. Holy Spirit as well. You know, this is a very solemn statement. This is about the strongest claim to being truthful in any of Paul's letters. Paul wants him to know he is absolutely telling the truth. This is no exaggeration. He is not dreaming this. He's not making it up. This is absolutely true. What? That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. That's a lot. Great sorrow and unceasing grief. He really cared about his brethren. He wanted them to know that what he taught was not because of malice or hostility or any ill will toward the Jews. He loved them. He cared about them. He was committed to them. For I could wish, or maybe I could pray, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Whoa! Would you ever say that? Would you ever think that? That if it would do any good, he would be willing to be lost so as for them to be saved. Now, clearly, it wouldn't help. Only Jesus could be that kind of a substitute. So this is kind of uh, uh, hypothetical. It would never help. The best thing we can do to save others is save ourselves and be able to pray for them and be able to be a good influence and example for them. But Paul cares so much about his brethren that if it would help, he'd be willing to be cut off from God so that they could be attached to God. I don't think there's anybody I love that much. You know, wow. To think that you'd be willing to be lost so they could be saved. And Paul is saying, I'm telling the absolute truth in Christ. He's putting it, this is not just a kind of a whim. You know, sometimes you say things, you really exaggerate. And you really don't mean it that strongly. But I don't think Paul would say what he did in verse 1 if he didn't mean this. Uh, these were his brethren according to the flesh. They're not his Christian brethren. Brother in the Bible, in the New Testament, doesn't always mean fellow Christian. A lot of times in the book of Acts, brethren is a fellow Jew, not a fellow Christian. Brother Paul, brother Saul, when Ananias came, didn't mean you were a Christian brother. There's a lot of times in Acts it uses it that way, and here as well. But they were his fleshly brethren, and he cared about them. And he did not discredit the blessings and position God gave the Jews, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. He recognizes their status as God's sons, God's children. The glory. What's the glory? The, exactly, the presence of God in the tabernacle, the temple, the brightness and glory of God in the Holy of Holies. Yes, I think that's it. That was amazing. If you thought about what that meant for the Jews to be the people among whom God's glory dwelt? Wow. And uh, the covenants. Think about the covenant through Moses, through Abraham, the covenant to David, and all of that. Wow. Those were great privileges. And the giving of the law. Paul is not discrediting the blessing of having the law of God and uh, the service, the worship, and the promises. Paul's 
God's given a list of all the blessings God gave to the Jews is an extensive, weighty list. These are wonderful privileges. Who's are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who were they? They were Jews. And from whom is the Messiah, the Christ, according to the flesh? In other words, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, was a Jew nationally, nationality-wise. He was, he was a, uh, he was a descendant of Abraham, by, according to the flesh. Who is overall, God blessed forever. Jesus is God. He's deity. I believe this is calling Jesus God blessed forever. The greatest blessing the Jews had was their biggest stumbling block. The thing they stumbled over was Jesus, and that was actually the greatest thing God ever gave them, was to have the Messiah, have the Christ, have Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was God was even a greater blessing, and that was even a greater stumbling block. You remember how they accused Jesus of blasphemy? Because he's declaring himself equal with God and all that sort of stuff. Not recognizing that was actually the greatest privilege God ever gave them. Was to have the Messiah, God, in their presence as a fellow Jew. So, you can't say, Paul's going to say some things that maybe the Jews would have a harder time with. But you can't say Paul was just unconcerned about Jews. Or he was a Jew hater, or he didn't love his fellow brethren or anything like that. That's just not true. Okay, comments or questions about that? Yes, Is, uh, in verse 1, is my conscience, is that the same as our spirit in 8.16? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think our conscience is more just my self-awareness. You know, so I don't know if it's exactly the same, but it's a similar kind. He's just saying, I'm, I'm aware in myself that I'm telling the truth. Yeah. Uh, just adding on to what you said, uh, in Mark 2, it made me think uh, with the Pharisees there, with Jesus and the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then they, they asked this question amongst themselves, why does this man speak blasphemies like this who can forgive sins for God alone? Mm-hmm. And they should have had the answer to that question right there. Right, yes. And he showed other credentials to prove himself. Yeah. Other thoughts? Alright, we've got some pretty challenging things in chapter 9. Same song, however many verses this is now in Romans. But I think it'd be good to take a break and clear our minds before we come back to that. So let's take a break for this. Look at just a summary of what the Spirit does for us in chapter 8. Spirit frees us from the law of sin and death. Spirit dwells in us. Spirit raises us from the dead. Kills the sinful needs of the body. Leads us. Testifies that we're the sons of God. And helps our weakness in prayer. There's a lot the Spirit does for us just in that chapter. And again, I would say, it is a mistake for us to downplay the role of the Spirit. We may not understand exactly how all that happens. Those are significant things the Spirit does for us. We need to be saying that, talking about that, uh, you know, preaching and teaching that. Uh, and there's plenty of more things the Spirit does for us throughout the other parts of the New Testament. So I, I thought that would be good to show and think about. Again, you can get these from here, come back up and look at the slides and tell me whatever you want. Show me the next one. And so when we looked at the part, why do all things work together for our good? Because God foreknew that there would be a people who would love him. He predetermined that these people would be like his son. He called the kind of people he wanted in the gospel. He justified those people through Jesus' death. He glorified past tense, but he's speaking of the future that's so certain he can say it in the past. He glorified that. So that, that's just kind of reviewing what we look at in chapter 8. Now you can change it again. Chapter 9, we've got kind of the pattern of the rest of it. God's promises to the Jews have not failed going to be three or four, however you look at it, main points he's going to make. We'll just leave this one up here for a while and let you see that as we're going through this. So I want you to look at verse 6. This is chapter 9, verse 6, where he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now when he says that, I think we need to think about that a little while. Who would have thought the word of God had failed? 
What would provoke somebody to imagine that the Word of God had failed? Until we understand the reason why somebody might think that, the answer to why the Word of God had not failed won't make a whole lot of sense. So I would like to stop and think with you for a minute about why you might think the Word of God had failed when Paul preaches salvation and the fulfillment of God's promises through faith in Jesus. So, I'll just look at a couple of passages probably. Look at Jeremiah 31. I want, you to, I want to show you some Old Testament promises. Jeremiah 31. Don't you know this passage? Look starting in verse 31. The old days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke of all as husband and then declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. <laughs> I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will give their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You know that passage from what book in the New Testament? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. The New Covenant. We know all about the New Covenant, but we didn't read that passage very carefully, did we? Who did God make the New Covenant? Who is he going to make the New Covenant with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 31. Now, if I wanted to be the other side, I'd say, Paul, you're teaching he made the, the covenant with all these Gentiles. Most Jews don't believe in Jesus, so you're saying he cut out the Jews and he made it with the Gentiles. But what the promise was, he was going to make the covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You're saying God reneged on his promise and gave it to somebody else. Because this promise of the new covenant is very clear. And he quotes this part and he quotes as well. It was for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, if the Jews didn't believe in Jesus, and they weren't justified, they didn't get this covenant that God said was going to be for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What he's saying is, I will not have the offspring of Israel cease, that they will not cease to be a nation before me forever. I will not cast off all the offspring of Israel for what they've done. God committed himself to not casting off the Israelites. But if the promise is fulfilled to those who have faith in Jesus and the Israelites don't, what did he do? The very thing he said he would never do, cast out all the Israelites. Now, I would like for you to see that as a problem. I, if, if we could do it, I wish you could feel uncomfortable. I wish you could start saying, whoa, I never thought about that. I never really noticed that passage. But that's kind of a problem since God took it away from Israel and gave it to the Gentiles, to the church. And he said he wouldn't do it. And he said he wouldn't do it as sure as the night is the day and the night from the day and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's pretty hard. That, that's like, wow. I look over at Jeremiah 33 and verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them? Thus they despise my people, no longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what do you want? He won't reject you, the Jews. He won't reject his people. Now, these are not isolated promises. All over the Old Testament prophets, the promises about the Messianic blessings were spoken to the Jews. They were blessings for the Jews. I might notice with you for just a moment, Zechariah chapter 9, and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And he's riding on the colt. Jesus was coming to who? He was coming to Zion and Jerusalem, the people of, of Israel. 
God's promises were to the Israelites, but the Israelites rejected Jesus. Paul says the promises come by belief in Jesus. Therefore, God did not fulfill the promises to the people he said he would. He committed himself to fulfill them to Israel, and he didn't do it because he's making salvation conditional on faith in Jesus, but Jews don't have faith in Jesus. So if the Jews of the whole rejected Christ, how was salvation through him consistent with God's previous prophecies? That would be the argument. I think that's why Paul feels the need to go through three chapters to prove that God's promises didn't fail. Now, if you don't see the problem with that, you won't understand the solution to it. Once you really see and are bothered by the problem with it, the solution is really intriguing. The solution is great. You know, it bothers you, and you're thinking, what in the world? This is a problem. And then you see what Paul said, you're like, I never would have thought about that. Uh, but but if you don't see the problem, you see the solution, it's like, huh? So do you have some questions about the problem? Do you see the problem? God promised it to the Jews, the new covenant to the Jews, but he fulfilled it to Gentiles, not to Jews. Anybody want to make a comment or... Uh, ask for clarification why. It could be lost, you know, <laughs> All right, so God made a promise to the Jews that he would give them the new covenant. But the new covenant was given to who in the New Testament? The church. But isn't the Jews part of the church? Well, the church are the people who believe in Jesus, right? Uh, okay, did, the, did the Jews as a whole believe in Jesus? No. Okay, it was more Gentiles than Jews. <laughs> So God didn't fulfill his promise to the Jews. He said he would. He said he'd give the blessing to the Jews. But that's not who he gave them to. Now do you see the issue? Again, if you will really feel the weight of that, this answer will make sense. The problem people have with Romans 9-11 to is they never understood the problem Paul was speaking about. When you don't get the problem, then the solution you're going to miss too, miss as well. So, would somebody read 6 to 13? But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as the For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. And she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, was the same. Not because of works, but because of him who called. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. This is brilliant. If you finally see the point of this, this answers the question right here, right now. So, Paul said God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Most of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. Most of the Jews were justified. Yet God promised to bless the Jews. But he says God's promises did not fail because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not all the descendants of Israel are Israel. Now he will illustrate. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Was Isaac a descendant of Abraham? Was Ishmael a descendant of Abraham? Were all the descendants of Abraham considered to be Israel? Ishmael was not. He had Abraham's blood, but he was not the chosen descendants of the promise. He was not considered to be the one through whom the promise was passed. It was passed through Isaac and not through Ishmael. So God made a choice as to which descendants of Abraham were the real ones in terms of the promise. You can't say that just because you're descended from Abraham, God was obligated to fulfill the promises through you. God excluded people from the Messianic lineage. He excluded people from Israel who have 
every bit of Abraham's blood in them. God has always chosen which descendants of Abraham are the children of the promise. What counts is God's choice and his grace, not your race. But there would be an issue, maybe, about Isaac and Ishmael. What could somebody say back to the fact he chose Isaac and not Ishmael? Yeah! Who was Ishmael's mother? Hagar, the bondwoman. He wasn't Sarah's son. So that's why God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael wasn't exactly legitimate. Okay, try another one. Rebecca. Remember who Rebecca was? Whose wife was she? Isaac. She had a couple sons, didn't she? Who were they? Esau and Jacob. Now, they had an unusual characteristic. What was the unusual thing about Esau and Jacob? They were twins. You can't say they had different mothers. They were not even products of, of a different conception. They were twins. So they were of the very same pregnancy. And that's a little stronger case, maybe. This is not a case of different mothers. Not even a case of different pregnancies. And which one was the oldest, technically? Esau. You realize that one twin always comes out a little bit before the other, usually not very long before, you know, maybe a minute or four or six or something like that. Doesn't last long. But there's one that's older and one that's younger. And in this case, the older one was Esau. And Jacob was the other one. So were both Esau and Jacob's descendants counted as Israelites? No. Which ones were? Jacob's, not Esau. Do you remember who were the what were the descendants of Esau called? Edomites. They weren't even called Israelites. So the descendants of Esau were not counted as the heirs of promise. But was Esau blood relative of Abraham? Every bit. He was every much as grandson of Abraham as what Jacob was. But God chose Jacob and not Esau. So does God have the right to choose which descendants of Abraham will be the descendants of the promise? Yeah. I mean, I don't understand how you're going to make Jacob more a descendant of Esau, um, of Abraham, than what Esau was. They were absolutely equal in terms of descendants. If anything, Esau was the priority because he was the first one. Now here's another thing. I think we might come to this sometimes. What if I ask you? So why is it that God chose Jacob and not Esau? I want I want to hear the wrong answer. What do you think? Uh, yeah, maybe because God knew that Esau was going to reject his um, birthright, and also that he would not let children pass through his land. Okay. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, we would say, well, because God knew Jacob would be better than Esau. Now, there's two reasons that that's not valid. You know what they are? A, Jacob was chosen over Esau before they were ever born. And he makes the point that before they've done anything good or bad, so I think his point is, it wasn't based on how good or bad they may have turned out to be. God chose them prenatally, not by merit, not because Jacob was better than Esau. Second thing is, I'm not really sure you can say Jacob was better than Esau. I don't know. It's kind of two bees in a pot in a different way. Esau was a mess in some ways, but I'll tell you what. Jacob was a conniving rascal through much of his life. I mean, that double crossing Esau... First of all, with the birthright, that was really stingy. You know, that was foolish on Esau's part, but he comes off as being naive and his brother's calculating. But then when he swizzled the blessing out of his brother, impersonating uh, Esau, that was really low. And I just, there's not a lot good to be said about Jacob during the first, you know, hundred and so, hundred or so years of his life. You know, he did a little better after the encounter with, uh, with the Lord, uh, uh, there when he comes back, I guess what is he back by that point, about 97 or so, I think. If I'm not mistaken, I may have that wrong, I'm thinking on my feet. But but whatever. 
Uh, Esau's a mess too. So I, I, you, it's kind of a wash, you know. But, but the point is, God chose which descendant was the descendant of blessing, not counting bloodline, not counting merit. Now his point is, God is doing the same thing today. Which Jews in Paul's day were the Jews of promise? The ones who believed in Jesus. Now, the Jews who believed in Jesus, were they more blood relatives of Abraham than the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus? No. Were the Jews who believed in Jesus, did they have more merit and they committed less sins than the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus? Not necessarily. Would you argue today that all Christians have better character and better conduct throughout their life than non-Christians? Why, there are Christians who've committed crimes that non-Christians have never thought about. We, we can't say that, that God saves the, Christ, the people who, are, who have the most merit, the most right to it. God saves wicked sinners. I mean, God, wow, he saved Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Wow, he said, I'm the cheapest of sinners. So clearly he wasn't saving based on merit. Think about the Old Testament. Who are some of the incredible people God saved in the Old Testament? Or at least God forgave in the Old Testament. Maybe we don't always know the eternal conclusion. David, yeah, I was thinking of him too. Wow, <laughs> murder and adultery is not exactly great on your resume. Uh, who else? Manasseh. I'll tell you what. Manasseh, in my book, is the winner for the worst king there's ever been. You know, wow, he was horrible. He repented at the end of his life, but God forgave him. There's no merit there. So it's not that God is obligated. To choose all the descendants of, of Abraham. He never has been. It's not that God's obligated to choose the best descendants of Abraham. He's never done that either. God chooses by whatever criteria he wants. As far as I know, he chose Jacob over Esau because he wanted to choose Jacob over Esau. I have no idea what criteria there were then. Today, God chooses the Jew who has faith in Jesus over the one who doesn't. Does having faith in Jesus make you a better person than a person who doesn't have faith? Say no. I think there's some people who have faith in Jesus and are saved who have done lots worse things in the life than the people who haven't. So in some cases, it doesn't matter. So he's establishing the point that God has the right to define the true Jew without regard to bloodline or law keeping. Much Israel is not Israel. Many descendants of Abraham are not descendants of Abraham in terms of the promise. And uh, there's no unrighteousness in God excluding Ishmael or excluding Esau for the promises to Abraham. There's no unrighteousness in him excluding unbelieving Jews. Now, that's a brilliant point. That proves you don't have to save all the Jews to be faithful to God's promises to the Jews. He saved the Jews who believed in Jesus. Were there any Jews who believed in Jesus? Of course. And he'll say that a little later on. He's exhibit A himself, and there's a remnant according to God's choices. There always is. All the apostles were Jews, etc. So yes, there are Jews who believe. Did the majority believe? No. They didn't have to. God shows which Jews were true Jews in terms of the reception of the promise. Thoughts and comments? Matt. I think because of how, and maybe you're going to talk about this later, because of how difficult this text is, we miss how practically applicable it is but for those of us who have been raised in a religious household but when we understood the Bible more clearly we question why our family isn't saved this is exactly what Paul is going through and I'm sure a lot of other Jewish Christians they went to the synagogues they went to the temple they're so used to their friends and their family remembering the promises of God reading the Torah but now when the Messiah comes not everybody's coming to Jesus. And why? And Paul goes to explain, you can know God's promises, but still misinterpret them because of selfishness or whatever. And that's what Paul's about to explain, and especially at the beginning of chapter 10. 
So his first point is, God's always chosen which descendants of Abraham would be his people. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau, regardless of bloodline or merit. God has the right to choose which ones will be the promised Jews. Receive the promise. Receive the blessing of Abraham. Yes, Sometimes my simplistic way of, of explaining this is you can't choose a bloodline of Jesus to come through to you. So it can't, well, okay, it can't come through Jacob and Esau. Okay. You've got to come through, you've got to make a choice. Sure, yes. Okay, good thought. Although God could choose this Israelites that were not his bloodline of Jesus. I can't find the passage, so I apologize, but I, I'm thinking about Moses when the people sin, and God says, I'll just raise up a new generation here holy, right? God God has had that power since the beginning of time to, to select and choose and is willing to destroy those who are not being his righteous people throughout, throughout generations. I think sometimes we think we're the United States, we're a Christian country, those types of things, but God can very easily take it and change that that narrative in our own mind. Or he can sometimes, in some cases, choose unrighteous people. He does that too. <coughs> yes, Jake. Uh, Jews had this mindset in the first century anyway, when Pharisees thought of themselves we're the right ones, we're the ones who are going to be saved. And so that concept already existed that not every Jew is being faithful here. And, and uh, now it's being applied not to the, these hyper religious Pharisees, but rather to those today. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, they, they had some exclusivism, but they didn't like this exclusivism. Other thoughts? Yes, please. And uh, two verses, or two chapters, I guess. In Romans 11, it's talking about the drafting in and breaking off, and then the Jews can be drafted back in again. So that sort of goes along with this context as well. Correct. And in Galatians 3, uh, 26, so we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus, and we are uh, heirs according to the promise of Abraham. Yes. So what we're ultimately going to see is Gentiles are brought in to share in these promises. That should not have been a novelty. What was God promised to Abraham in your seed? All the nations? Like from the time God called Abraham, he said there would be Gentiles brought in too. So some of this is the Jews didn't read their scriptures very careful. You know, and we'll see that more as we go through. All right, um, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there uh, justice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human ability or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power to you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, what shall we say? There's no injustice with God, is there? You know, can we complain about this? Well, God didn't show mercy to the right people. He's just not fair. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Whose mercy is it? Who has the right to decide who he's going to show it to? I mean, really. If God decided to show, show mercy to, you know, all the blue-eyed blondes in the world, would we, could we complain? I mean, what about some rich dude who gives money to people? Can you complain if he doesn't give the money to you? He doesn't owe you any money. He just gives it away. He gives it away who he wants to. It's not fair. He gives it away to him and not to me. It's his money. Give it to whoever he wants to. That's his point, first of all. That the Jew thought he had the right to control who God gave him mercy to. But what his mercy? He's not obligated to show mercy to anybody. Yeah. Um, now, he can choose conditions to give his mercy on if he wants to. That's what he's done. But, but he can choose whatever condition he wants to. 
The Jew might have said, well, I don't think it ought to be based on faith in Jesus. Well, okay, you don't have to believe it ought to be. But that's what God chose. He's writer than you are. It's his mercy. You know, I might say, well, I think the rich dude ought to give money to this person, that person, to this group of people. Well, it's his money. He's going to do with it what he wants to. So my, my, my desire in the matter doesn't control who God has the right to give the mercy to. Then he says, so that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Not up to me, it's up to God. Then he says, when the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now that's a little harder for us, God's hardened. Now go back to Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh ask Moses to begin the whole process? Who is the Lord? And God signed him up for a 10-lesson course. God raised him up. God made him Pharaoh. God strengthened him to be able to resist like he wanted to. And he punished him. Could God have wiped Pharaoh out in one fell swoop? Of course. Could God have made the plague so severe Pharaoh had to give in? Of course. God chose to play with Pharaoh. He chose to make, chose to make an example out of him. And he chose to harden him. Now... He could have hardened him, I guess, for any reason he wanted to. But why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? As an example. Example, power. I would say because Pharaoh was hard-hearted. <coughs> Pharaoh got, this was a punishment. This was a punishment for his stubbornness. And so God strengthened him, he hardened him, to be able to be as rebellious as he wanted to be. Now, the plagues, did they harden all Egyptians' hearts? Remember, there were some that were softened by the plagues. There were some who humbled themselves because of the plagues and who, you know, started listening and even begging Pharaoh to listen. So the same fire that hardens bricks softens metal. Depends on the kind of uh, person you are. Uh, so God hardens hearts because as a punishment, but God can harden who he chooses. He's got the right. The, the passage is simply saying God has the right to choose who he'll bless or punish. Now, who has he chosen to bless? Those who have faith in Jesus. Who has he chosen to punish? Those who don't have faith in Jesus. That's what he's chosen. But the point is, God can choose how he wants to. My actions don't obligate him. I've, I've got, he's got the right. Somebody would say, he should choose the very best people. Irregardless of their faith in Jesus. Okay, you can think that if you want to. It's not up to you. Basically, we don't have the right question. Why? If God only chose that one, we'd all be in hell anyway. Well, many of us would. Uh, exactly. Not sure how he decide all that, but God hasn't chosen that. And for us to say he should, well, that just shows our opinion. Thoughts and comments. Nineteen to twenty-four. You will say to me then. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing mold will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So, you will say to me, why does he find fault? Who resists his will? You know, how, who am I to resist what God says? If God just chooses who he chooses, then, then you can't blame me. Well, first of all, he says, who are you to answer back to God? You know, we better not argue with God and just trust him and listen. That would that help us a lot. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? <coughs> He's rebuking the presumptuous attitude of a Jew who would tell God how to run his world. You know, tell God who you should have cho- chosen who you shouldn't. Who is, who is anybody to tell God what he should have done? Now, what did he do? The, the potter has the right over the clay. He can make the clay into whatever kind of vessel he wants to. 
And, and, and think about it. Does anybody have any right to really claim God's blessing? What are we all? Sinners. How do sinners have any rights with God? We've all forfeited our rights. Whatever God gives is mercy, and we cannot control the dispensing of mercy. God has the right to make vessels how he wants to. Now, how has God exercised that right? Exercised that right. He, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. What God actually did was to endure with much patience even the vessels would be destroyed. God didn't have to, but he chose to. He chose to be extremely patient even with these vessels that were going to be destroyed. So the Jew uh, can't complain that God didn't give them chances. He gave them, he gave them a lot of chances. And God showed mercy on those who had faith. God's the potter. He has every right to do that. He, he chose who he wanted, those who had faith in Jesus. And we don't have any right to question that. God was patient even with the rest of them. God gave them all kinds of opportunities. They didn't choose to receive the blessings of God. So this whole idea that we can demand that God has to save all Jews, because otherwise he's unfaithful to his promises, well, God has always chosen which Jews are the true Jews for the purpose of receiving the promise, and he has the right to do that. Thoughts and comments? Austin. I think about this in terms of Luke 22, where the one who was perfect, who had the right to question God and ask God, even does that in a humble way, where Jesus says, you know, not my will, but your will be done. Yes. And, you know, he's the only one that has that exception and still respected God to the point of letting God's will be done. Good thought. Yeah, I agree. Why? Okay. Other thoughts? <laughs> Alright, so 25 to 29. Really intriguing passage. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would be, have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. I don't know if there's any passage in Paul's writing that shocks more Old Testament passages into it than 9 through 11. This is all, all about God's word hasn't faith. Well, he's showing a bunch of God's word to show it hasn't faith. So, but 25 and 26 are interesting. He says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. When he talks about those who were not his people, those who were not beloved, those who he said, You are not my people, who was he talking about in Hosea? We thought that the Gentiles, I hope somebody would give that answer. Who is he talking about in Hosea? It's chosen people who aren't serving. Yes! Go back to Hosea, he was talking about the Jews that he was sending into captivity, and he was cutting them off from being his people, and he was not making them his beloved anymore. And then he took them back by taking the Jews who were not his people because of their sin and making them his people again. The, the Jews who were not mercy recipients because of their sins and made them recipients of his mercy again. In the context of Hosea, that passage applies to Jews, showing that those who were once rejected can be taken back. You wouldn't have thought that when you read that in Romans 9, would you? You need to look at the context of the Old Testament passages. Now, the first thing you think when you see that that was talking about unfaithful Jews that were being brought back is Paul misapplied the passage. Why did Paul use this passage then to talk about the Gentiles? 
Well, actually, what Paul did is profound. He is saying that if you object to God calling people who are not his people his people, Jews, you're out. Because you are not his people and he brought you back. If you're saying that God can't take people who are not beloved and make them beloved, Jews, you're out. Because you were not beloved and God made you beloved again. So if the Jews object to God receiving the Gentiles because they weren't his people, they have to object to themselves because they had passed through a phase where they were not God's people, too. So this is a very powerful argument. There's a pattern. God's willing to make people who were not his people his people. If that wasn't true, Jews, you're out. Because you were not his people at that point. That's, that's brilliant. That's where you've got to study the Old Testament context of those New Testament passages. When you don't do that, half the time you miss the argument. And half the time you miss the power of the argument. Though Isaiah says in a couple of passages, it'll only be a remnant that'll be saved. If God hadn't left a remnant, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, Isaiah said there would only be a remnant of the Jews who would receive salvation and who would be blessed. Uh, and and so uh, they, they should it shouldn't have taken them by surprise that there was only a remnant of the Jews who believed in Jesus and received salvation in, in Jesus because Isaiah had said there'd only be a remnant. Thoughts and comments. So are we following the point? You know, right, here's the promises of God. I'll make the new covenant with Israel. And then he makes a new covenant with those who have faith in Jesus, and that cuts out most of Israel and Jew. His God's God promises fail. No, because not all Israel are Israel. God's always chosen which descendants of Abraham would receive the promises. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau, which proves it's not about bloodline or marriage. And God has every right to choose. It's his mercy to give. And God has every right to do what he wants to as the potter over the clay, even though he's chosen to be even patient with those who would ultimately end up being destroyed. And God showed in Hosea and Isaiah the principle that he takes back people who are not his people. And that he shows mercy to those who do not receive mercy. And that he would only bless a remnant in the Messiah. So really Paul shows that he's always chosen which descendants of Abraham would be his people. He has the right to make that choice. He's done it again. It's the Jew who has faith in Jesus. That is not a contradiction of God's promises to the Jews. Questions and comments? I think they wanted to think that salvation was exclusive, exclusively a Jewish blessing or a process. It seems that way it was. Here's Paul, who's also a Jew. And I think that ethnicity brings part into it as well. Okay. Yeah. Because he's the Jew, so I mean, he can relate. I mean, he's something that we can relate to. They have to. They gotta look at it and say, what's going on with this guy? Are they thinking, is he blasphemy as well? Uh, hopefully, they're listening to what he's right. But here's his evidence to back up everything he's teaching. Like, curious to me, like, are we really looking patient to this? Because we know the Christ example, there's a lot of evidence there, too, about what Christ was. But there was still a lot of divides. So I'm curious to see, you know, what's going to happen in the rest of the scripture. Well, the question is what happens with us. Other thoughts? And you know this passage of Romans 9 is greatly used to support Calvinism. I just, uh, I came across something. I, I don't remember how much of this I put together and how much of this I borrowed. But if human destiny was absolutely and arbitrarily fixed by God's decree, think about it. All the exhortations to work out our own salvation and to persevere in right doing is just a farce. Because we can't do it anyway. All cautions against moral lapse are irrelevant because we can't lapse morally if we're one of the chosen. All suggestions of the possibility of forfeiting God's blessings are really vain threats because you can if you have them. 
All uses of God's promises to appeal to repentance and holiness are kind of a taunt because you can't repent and be holy unless God makes you that way. All recognitions of the possibility of moral transformation is kind of a satire. You can't be transformed unless God's chosen you, and if he's chosen you, you can't not be transformed. So much of the Bible contradicts that Calvinistic presupposition. And we shouldn't just measure on their passages. We also ought to say, look at the whole tenor of the Bible. All right, uh, chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained, attained righteousness, even righteousness, even righteousness, which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, this is a second point to me. I don't like the chapter break here. I wish they'd have made the chapter break at verse 30. Righteousness acceptable all. Gentiles found it when they weren't even looking for it. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. They got it when they weren't looking for it. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. The Jews were seeking it, but they didn't get it. Why not? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They sought it the wrong way. They sought it by law-keeping. They sought to try to become what they ought to be by their own merit, by their own achievement, without relying on God. They refused to submit to God's method of justification. You can look at salvation in two ways. You can look at it by works. So you try to do enough, and be good enough, and make yourself pure enough that God will save you, or by faith recognizing you could never be good enough, you'll never be adequate, and accepting mercy and forgiveness and giving your God, yourself to God in love and gratitude. So what did the Jews do? They pursued the law of righteousness, but they didn't get there because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They tried to get to righteousness by their own achievement, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus. They thought they were advancing on a clear path, but they stumbled over the very Messiah that they'd been hoping for. He was supposed to be a stone of refuge, but he became a, became a stumbling stone to them. Because they were trying to get salvation by their merit. Uh, and so, it's not that salvation was hard to receive. It's that they pursued the law in all the wrong ways. They wanted to earn salvation. They didn't want to receive it as a gift. And that's not God's way. Comments and questions on that. Uh, we've studied a while today, even, and a lot of hard things, so we need to take a little bit more in the way of breaks, just to kind of refresh our mind. So let's take a break. We'll take a break for about 15 minutes, and then we'll do one more session here before uh, we... Sorry. I know.